Nelson Abramson walked into a data center for the first time 18 years ago. He was an electrical engineer fresh out of college, and he was interviewing for a job that he did not fully understand at the time. Before I went to Google, I did not know what a data center was. 18 years is an eternity in the computing world. Back in 2002, many data centers were just glorified IT closets. They were cramped, kind of messy, a little DIY, and tiny by today's standards. At the time, Google servers were housed in small cages. And so there are like metal fencing to subdivide rooms. And so we had small digit number of racks in these subdivided rooms spread across other people's facilities in uh, the East Coast and the West Coast. And so it's not surprising that Nelson couldn't even find the place. There wasn't much to find. And I was hours and hours late to the interview in many respects because I could not find it. And so they gave me, this was of course pre-Google Maps, this was like MapQuest, and this was even pre-mobile MapQuest. This was, I had printed out paper directions from MapQuest to get to a random address in Ashburn, Virginia, and nothing is marked. And it's, in, it's an unmarked white two-story warehouse building in the middle of a gigantic office park with no address markers and no, no gas stations to ask anybody. And so it took me hours to find it. Nelson was applying to be a technician at the data center. And despite being hours late and failing some crucial interview questions, he got the job and soon learned what the central task of his job was making sure the hardware didn't go down. Fixing machines, rolling racks and plugging them in, you know, the getting things done in the data center on the floor. I went back and looked at your LinkedIn profile and the only description of this particular job is holding back the tide of broken servers. Oh yeah, Whew. I've not reviewed my LinkedIn profile in a while. <laughs> so why would Google hire someone to work in data centers who had no experience with data centers? Well, Nelson was joining a growing group of engineers, software developers, and manufacturing experts who did not care about iterating on current designs. They were tasked with building a new kind of machine, using a radically tight budget and hardware components that you could find at any consumer electronics store. They were working on Google's first big bet for the future of computing. Frankly, I still get cold sweats and nightmares just thinking about how the heck we ran Google on those things. But at the time, it was cutting edge. It was cutting edge and maybe with the wrong word. It was uh, experimental. It was a matter of survival, especially in the early days. This is Where the Internet Lives, a podcast from Google about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Barry Fisher. I'm a data storyteller at Google, and I'm your guide through the physical places that make the internet run. In our first episode, we defined what data centers are, examining how you use them whenever you search, check your email, or get directions to the park. In this episode, we go deeper behind the walls. What's it like inside one of these warehouse-sized supercomputers? And how did we go from tiny servers and rented back rooms to hyperscale data centers with tens of thousands of machines? So back in the fall of 2001, a year before Nelson got lost in that industrial park in Virginia, an operations expert named Andrea Westcott got a call. It was from a manager at Google who was assembling a small team to rethink data center hardware. She had no experience in manufacturing, so she went out to find people who could do this kind of work. Andrea actually started her career at a Japanese diesel engine manufacturer, and later she managed logistics for Webvan, an online grocery company that imploded during the dot-com bust of 2001. 
Google was looking for someone who knew the logistics of making heavy-duty goods and how to do it with a startup mentality. So she was hired as a part-time project manager, and her job was to oversee the ordering and tracking of computer parts and how to manage how they were assembled. I think it helped. I had come from a diesel engine manufacturer. Just I think having that experience was was really what I what helped me guide this experience at Google before we had, you know, actual manufacturing teams and actual production teams devoted to it. That it was a small team inside Google that was assembling, testing, and often destroying new computer hardware. It was an effort to build a new system for organizing the world's information. The person leading that effort was a guy named Urs Holtzle. Today, Urs is Google's senior vice president of technical infrastructure. He's the chief architect of the company's whole global computing system. Back then, he was Google's VP of engineering. And armed with a small amount of venture capital for the startup, he had a clear mission. And what exactly was Urs tasking you to do? Well, I think what he really wanted us to do was prove that we could build machines for a data center at scale a lot cheaper. And we could do it by capitalizing on consumer grade products. And the redundancy we could build into the system would more than compensate for the subpar components that we were buying. Here's Oris describing that early mission in a 2017 interview with the head of editorial at Google Cloud, Quentin Hardy. You have overseen the creation of what was, I guess, a couple of stacks of servers into what people say is now the world's largest computing system. And what was that like? Uh, that was uh, uh, 18 years of hard work, I think. In the beginning, we barely had a one-year plan. We had $25 million of, of venture capital funding. And given the size of the problem, you know, download the entire web and index it and then serve it as search, that's actually not very much money. And so it was very clear even from the beginning that if you solve it the traditional way, it will never work. The money won't last. And, and so that was actually a challenge really from the beginning. But to some extent, it's also liberating because if you know that the standard way is really completely off the table, there's actually much less risk of trying something else because you don't really have a safe choice. And that meant hiring people like Andrea, who came from outside the traditional data center industry. I think one of the great things about the early days especially, was they didn't care how the industry did it. It didn't matter. To their credit, they thought, well, no one's ever done this before, so we're just going to pave the way, and we don't really care what the industry does. Industry standard didn't really apply to us because we were doing something that was not industry standard by definition. So why would a startup low on cash like Google try to build an entirely new computing system? Well, think back to when Nelson Abramson was hunting for that data center in Virginia two decades ago. Today, Nelson runs strategy for Google's gaming platform, Stadia, which allows people to stream high-resolution games from a data center in real time. Back in 2002, his printout map from the internet was considered cutting edge. And that's because the computing infrastructure back then was wildly different. Before Google... The traditional technology was what's called big iron. So you would buy uh, hard drives from high-end vendors. 
If you wanted a place to host your data or build an application, it was typically only possible with these large computers from vendors, often located at facilities where other companies would also buy space, and they were super expensive. Google did not have that money to buy those kinds of servers. Well, that was a problem because Google search was expanding fast and it needed vastly more computing infrastructure, but it couldn't afford to just get it from another company. And as a scrappy startup, it could barely afford to build its own machines either. You know, my main concern at Google at that point was really, um, are we going to run out of money before we figure out, you know, how to make money, you know, money from our original startup investments. Luis Andre Bajoso is a VP of engineering at Google. He was hired as a software engineer in 2001, but his background in hardware design made him a good candidate to help build this new computing system. And his team operated under a simple principle. Thrifty to an extreme. Luis remembers Gerald Eichner, a team member in charge of negotiating hardware prices. And Gerald would scrutinize every dollar spent. I remember him being upset when we upgraded the paper towel dispensers in the bathrooms to this automated machines. That this is expensive. We can't afford this kind of thing. Are you crazy? So that mentality of doing a lot with less was well embedded at Google. In June of 2020, Luis actually won a prestigious industry award for his work designing the first warehouse-scale computers. But back then, he didn't even have a desk. Desks were seen as a luxury. His team used recycled workbenches that were basically just doors laid over metal legs. So we didn't have an option to to just do what everybody else was doing. We simply could not afford it. We would not be in business. So in every way that we could think about saving a penny, we would figure out a way to do that. And that meant making some early decisions that seem a little ridiculous now, like buying off-the-shelf computer parts from consumer electronics stores. Because it was cheaper, way, way, way cheaper. And the flip side was then the software had to account for the fact that servers were dying. At first, they kept the assembled machines in buildings where other internet companies housed their servers. And compared to the high-end equipment that all the other companies used, Google's computers looked a bit rough around the edges. For one thing, ours were not pretty. (laughs) We certainly didn't care about cosmetics. Remember the breadboards from episode one? Well, what Andrea is talking about here is the first generation of those bakery-style racks that had trays to hold servers and electronics. But they weren't like the sleek, glowing designs you see in stock photos today. The cables were everywhere. There was no automation. It was literally fold-up tables and boxes of component parts, as I said, down to like screws and Velcro straps. We had to try to assemble and keep organized in a place that was not really meant to have that kind of organization. And they also used cork boards. Yeah, like from a bulletin board. They laid boards of cork on the metal racks. And then put the motherboard basically on top of those. There was, you know, no screws, nothing. And it did cut down on vibration. It did a very good job. It also did a good job insulating uh, the heat inside the server, which made it really difficult to cool and caused it to overheat. And those were the, the very, very early computers. And that brings us back to Nelson's LinkedIn job description, holding back the tide of broken servers. When Andrea's team shipped machines to that small facility in Virginia, Nelson would keep an eye on the equipment, reporting failures, replacing parts, sometimes frantically. When you have machines that fail on purpose all the time, you need a lot of people running around constantly fixing them. 
And so that's what we were doing. We were running around constantly fixing them. You're constantly refreshing the technology in a way that you never would if it was a third-party finished vendor kind of thing. They expected that parts would break. So engineers built redundancy into the design. And that's where Luis came in. He helped write web search software that could survive failures of multiple servers, a key aspect of what was to become warehouse scale computers. The hope was that they could expand faster and cheaper than anyone. High reward, but high risk too. We were trying to build the biggest computers on the planet with almost no money. Google did eventually start making money and was then able to invest more in machines. Hardware designs and assembly improved, and the team moved to dedicated manufacturing space. As the internet grew from tens of millions of web pages to tens of billions, their approach worked well enough for indexing the internet. Then in 2004 came another test, a little email service called Gmail. That was a big shock to the system. A bit later in the show, how expanding beyond search kicked off the next bet in Google's big gamble. To really understand how radical Google's early approach was, we have to go deep inside the data centers of today. The team assembling off-the-shelf equipment on corkboard in the early 2000s would hardly recognize them. They're so big that we're going to need an experience tour guide, and we found the perfect person for the job. I've always been very impressed by all the tourist guides who give you these audio tours, so this is my chance at uh, trying to take a stab at that. This is Partha Ranganathan. He's a distinguished engineer at Google, designing the next generation of data centers. And he's made some groundbreaking advancements in the energy use and performance of servers. Partha literally wrote the book on designing data centers alongside Urs Holtzle and Luis André Bajoso, who you heard from earlier. So who better to lead us inside? So imagine me with my flag, uh, uh, walking a whole bunch of tourists through my data center here, right? Partha's going to walk us through the different spaces inside a data center, and we'll stop along the way to examine how each system works and hear from other experts who manage them. And the first stop where I would huddle everyone together would be the entrance of the data center. And uh, uh, if you look at the entrance of the data center, and I've been to a bunch of these data centers, and the security that you go through, uh, it's almost like in a James Bond movie. In the movies, James Bond has a boss. Her name is M. She's the woman who's monitoring threats around the world and sending Bond out on missions. Well, in the Google data center world, that person is Heather Vachon. We are definitely probably like the secret protection behind running the, the show for the Google's data centers. Okay, so she doesn't actually send people out on missions, not secret agents anyway, but she is the person overseeing all of the systems that protect the information inside of Google data centers. Heather used to handle security for banks, you know, like heists, fraud, and cybersecurity. As you walk in, you can see that Heather and her teams are just as serious about data center security. First, every campus is surrounded by layers and layers of surveillance, anti-climb fences that detect movement. You got overlapping infrared cameras and patrols and guard kiosks that are staffed 24-7. So security starts well before you ever get to the property. And then, if they let you through, that's when you approach the facility's high-tech James Bond entrance. The one Partha's talking right, about. Here. Can I grab your temperature real quick? First, we have to badge in. All right, you're good to go. Have a good day. All right, thank you. And then, to make sure none of us in the tour group has picked up someone else's badge, we each have to go through an iris scan. And this is just the security we can see. 
What you can't see is everything else going on in Heather's world, in the Security Operations Center, or SOC. We have huge video walls and people sitting at desks with three or four monitors in front of them, and they are monitoring alarms and cameras from all different parts of our facilities and from our, um, globally, right? Heather's teams have been monitoring our progress as we walk in. They already knew we were coming. All visitors, and even employees too, have to get advanced permission from security to be here in the first place. In fact, less than 1% of all of Google's employees ever get to see this space. It's to protect the data and making sure that um, we're holding um, our customers and consumer information um, as secure as possible. So we've gone through the badge reader and iris scan. Now we approach the circle lock. This is like a futuristic revolving door, and it allows one person through at a time to make sure only authorized people are going in and out. So now we're inside the main data center space, but still not at the server floor. So Partha leads us through a metal detector and another circle lock and a door ahead. And this is his favorite part, simply because of what you can see and what you can hear. Whenever I take somebody through the data center, uh, there's a place where I uh, kind of have my big reveal. And then you see this, as far as the eye can see, you see rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of machines. And this is the server floor. And it's one of the most exciting feelings uh, to watch somebody's jaw drop on the floor when they see that. And then you kind of see, uh, hey, I think I see the horizon there. And then somebody tells you, no, there's like another three more of these uh, uh, buildings right behind that uh, worth of computers. People talk about these spaces in terms of acres and football fields. They're massive. And all these computers are where your Gmail messages, photo albums, Google Docs, and pet videos, all those things you can access at a second's notice, this is where they live. And it's why very few people ever get to set foot in here. You know, if it's like when you go to some of these places in the world that are, you feel like you're at the heart of the, the physical world. And when you go inside a data center, you feel like you're at the heart of the digital world. This is Nan Bowden. She's a former senior director at Google Cloud. And now she's a leader of the Everyday Robot Project, a robotics initiative at X, Alphabet's moonshot factory. Nan has been around high-tech computing her entire career, and even she is blown away by the server floor. And uh, you know that the bits that are flying past you here are connected all over the world and going, doing all kinds of calculations. And I think that's been, um, that's, it's, it's really humbling and inspiring to be part of that and be close to it. You've probably noticed that with all this computing activity, the floor has its own distinctive hum. All of these computers, these servers, they all have fans built in, just like all of your home computers have fans built in as well. Here's Joe Kava to explain. Joe is Google's VP of Global Data Centers, basically the person in charge of running the entire operation behind this system of computers. And when there's tens of thousands of them inside a room and they're all running at the same time, those fans make a lot of noise. And then the cooling fans that are used in the, the cooling systems, they make noise. And so it's actually loud enough that you need to have some hearing protection if you're going to be in there for you know working all day or, or even if you're in there for for half an hour or an hour, you want to have some earplugs in um, or some headphones on. And if you walk along the rows, you can actually feel the machines processing. You'll notice something else too. Even though the machines are being cooled, it feels pretty comfortable in here. Here's Luis again. If you're a data center technician in the 80s, 
you were wearing a very thick sweater at all times because the temperature is like, you know, 58 degrees. In our new data centers, as it still is the case today, a t-shirt will suffice. Many Google employees even wear shorts inside data center buildings today as the average temperature hovers around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. This casual dress code is actually the result of a technical innovation made by Luis and other early Google pioneers. They found that instead of chilling data center buildings to uniformly frigid temperatures, they could take an approach that was more precise and efficient. They cooled specific zones of the building, called cool aisles, which did need careful temperature control, while maintaining separate hot aisles where computers' waste heat could be exhausted. And you can actually walk past different rows and you can kind of realize uh, the ones that are doing more compute because uh, uh, they tend to have more cooling and they tend to have uh, fans running faster. Uh, you see the hot aisles and the cold aisles. So you can actually have a tactile visual. Uh, you can have a physical experience where as you walk through different portions of the data center, you can kind of feel the uh, uh, heat and the cold uh, uh, air kind of coming in. So how does all the digital information, the emails, the searches, cat photos, how do they move around in the data center? Well, if you look at the machines and up at the ceiling, you'll see neat bundles of fiber optic cable everywhere. And, and Google data centers are really interesting because they are also very colorful. So you see these uh, multicolored wires, um, which are all the networking that's going around. The ones in the zeros are zooming through these cables at nearly the speed of light. And they're the starting point of a network that circles the entire globe. It's a system of cables that connects Google data centers to each other and ultimately to billions of people. Steve Walter, the VP of Network Engineering, thinks about these cables as the plumbing for the internet. In our case, those pipes are fiber optic cables. And those devices and pipes encode those ones and zeros into photons, into small particles of light. And those signals then have to reach every corner of the world where users of those devices live. So our job is really to build and operate this set of fibers and devices that pass photons kind of across the world to those devices and to and from our data centers. Back on the server floor, those colorful cables run from the machines and racks up to the ceiling, and they're bundled into well-organized lanes, which technicians often call fiber raceways. They really do look like super highways of wires. And these lanes converge at massive panels called switches that route the ones and the zeros across the world. Here's Nan again to explain. The switches and the networking that's inside the data center, um, it, it would be an impressive thing to have built one switch that looks like what you see just row after row after row. Instead, just the, the aggregation of them and the orderliness of it, you know, how all of the fiber optic cables are organized, bringing them in, coming into the switches and then go back out to the larger backbones that eventually cover the globe, including undersea cables. Now, these data centers are only as powerful as their connection to the rest of the world. And that's where the global cabling system comes in. Now, forgive us for the mishmash of metaphors. You know, Nan called it a backbone and Steve called it plumbing. And last episode, Nicole Henley called it the nervous system. We all have our ways of imagining this giant infrastructure. Well, Jane Stoll is the person who oversees the construction of cables across oceans. And she thinks about them as part of a circulatory system. Well, think about the human body. Um, the human body has a brain and I would call that the equivalent of our data centers in the global network. And then submarine cables, the thing that I do, 
Um, think of it as the primary arteries and the heart that kind of pumps the lifeblood around the body. So submarine cables really are the ability to bring the international data back and forth to those data centers, and it just keeps feeding them with, with new data. Whatever your favorite metaphor is for cables, Jane is really good at laying them across the oceans. In the 90s, she pioneered an approach that sped up the process by years, literally from six years down to less than two years. I came to uh, become pretty much the queen of submarine. I love that. Did someone coin that nickname for you? Um, yes, actually, Vint Cerf, the founder of the internet. The cables put down by Jane's team live on the ocean floor with creatures like deep-sea squid and crabs. And while some of the fish down there are fast swimmers, they're actually quite slow compared to the speed of information flying through the fiber optic cables, which travels at more than 450 million miles per hour. Submarine cables, though, don't just transmit information quickly. They can also transfer a ton of it. Google's newest transatlantic cable will have a data carrying capacity equivalent to more than 17 million people streaming ultra-high definition 4K videos at the same time. But if you came across one of these cables on a scuba dive, you might not even notice it. The diameter of one of these cables is about the diameter of your garden hose. It is not much bigger than the circumference of your thumb. Wow, that... That's surprising. That is one thing that surprises most people. Just think of a long, thin garden hose lying quietly at the bottom of the ocean. Around that, you put a little bit of armoring protection, and around that, you put another layer of copper for conductivity, because you have to have electric current going with it all through the, the ocean. On top of that, you have a polythene layer to keep the, the water from uh, getting into your cable. And you know, that, that's basically it. You have a bit of wire around to give it some tensile strength. But all in all, it's about a garden hose. Near the shore, these cables are heavily armored. They're wrapped in galvanized steel and buried under the sand. They're very well protected, but cables still face small cuts several times a month. At sea, the culprit might be an anchor or a fishing vessel. And on land, it could be a backhoe at a construction site, grazing cows, mischievous squirrels, or even a horse burial. Yes, a horse burial. Partha says that one is lore. Some might even say folklore inside Google. I, I often give people this uh, example of um, a dead horse bringing down a service. And it turns out there was a scenario where uh, when somebody was burying a dead horse, uh, they didn't quite follow the legal uh, requirements and they ended up uh, hitting a cable that was uh, providing the network service to a whole bunch of very critical services. Yeah, so horses and ships happen. But the design of the network as a whole, including backup cables, backup servers, even backup data centers, ensures that any damage to a cable doesn't interrupt your search or video chat. Nan Bowden explains. Knowing how that, that network is put together um, and the performance of it, and, and not just the performance uh, in terms of how many terabytes uh, are being moved across the bisection of the network, which is uh, awe-inspiring, but it's also the resiliency of it. 
there's all kinds of things that happen in the real world that, that essentially the users never see. Or if they see at all, it's just this little tiny blip of maybe a tenth of a second longer latency. And they didn't know that their packet just bounced off a different continent. So now that we've had our speed of light detour at the bottom of the ocean, we're going back to the data center. Resiliency is baked into the system at every point of the network, inside and outside of data center campuses. And that includes the electricity that makes everything run. So you walk through the main compute equipment and then you look up and you see these big bus bars, which is uh, these big slabs of copper on which you are sending your current. And we do some really nice innovations on medium voltage power delivery as well. Now, if we keep following these bus bars through the building, we'd eventually come outside to the switchyard. You may know it as an electrical substation. And it's where the power flowing into the campus is controlled. And it's where you may spot Thomas Gamble, a facility manager at the data center. You'll sometimes catch him out here marveling at the equipment. Not many people come out here to do that, but Thomas was a power plant manager for 18 years prior to joining Google. So the switchyard is a place where he feels right at home. People look at me like I'm a little bit crazy because I'll be in the 161,000 volt switchyard just talking and going on and you get a comfort level, but you have to remain cautious, right? So you never get so comfortable you do something crazy, but you're not so afraid that you're not willing to even walk inside the, the locked-off fence area to, to, to check things out. So, 160,000 volts. And most of us are familiar with 120 volts in our outlets, maybe 240 if you have an electric car. But 160,000 volts? That's a lot of potential energy. When you look at the footprint, you look at a lot of even manufacturing plants, they're nowhere on the scale of power usage that, you know, that goes through a data hall floor. You know, you have 20 to 30 megawatt or even 40 megawatts per zone. Uh, I mean, and that's that's generally a, a large type steel mill or something's output. So it's just not comparable to the, the general business environment or, you know, like a grocery store or manufacturing plant. They just are they're nowhere in the same ballpark. The energy piece is also fascinating because of what's happening on the other end of the power lines. Google is working towards sourcing 100% of that energy from carbon-free sources around the clock. And that's a really big topic in its own right, so we'll be exploring it in a future episode. In the meantime, if you're back in the switchyard and you can hear equipment humming, it's best not to touch it. And if we walk around the corner, we might see cooling towers, backup power supply, and other state-of-the-art equipment that makes these data centers run smoothly 24-7. It's a grand operation, and for the people who work here, it still sparks a sense of wonder and awe. And speaking of, you might have noticed something else while staring at all that equipment. The actual people who are keeping the computers running. Here's Thomas again. I mean, there's there's tons of equipment you could go to, I think. The thing that people take for granted and don't see it about data centers, really, is the diverse background of people that work here. Because generally... uh, a hardware ops technician, the person that does, writes code and does all this type of activities on servers and equipment, uh, compared to a career electrician or or technician of some sort and on that side, it is just completely different uh, backgrounds and experiences. So, I mean, we, we could talk about all kind of different servers and how we do business there, but Really, it would be the the cooperation that happens inside the the teams. So there you have it, your tour of the modern warehouse data center. Parth is one of the people actually designing these facilities, and he's still learning something new every time he steps foot inside one. 
It's fascinating. I think uh, uh, if you want to learn a lot about physics, um, electrical engineering, computer science, mechanical engineering, uh, I, I think uh, you couldn't do any worse than going through a data center tour. You get like, uh, it's it's like when I remember walking through Hoover Dam, uh, uh, every single stop was like super instructive. And um, I would say walking through a Google data center, you learn 10 times as much because you're learning about so many different aspects of uh, uh, how things work. You're hired, Partha. I, I think if Google ever built a museum of data centers, you'd be the chief tour guide. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I have a backup job. <laughs> so that's what data centers look like today. They're worlds apart from the small freezing spaces where Luis, Andrea, and Nelson were building early machines. And although the scale was much smaller in the 2000s, the stakes were just as high. Here's Andrea again. Because if we didn't come to work, if we didn't build those machines... Uh, search wouldn't serve that query. So uh, we felt really responsible or at least as equally a part of that revenue generating stream as as the people who worked on search. So it was a lot of pressure. Google played a unique role on the internet. It was a starting point for a lot of people, me included. It was the tool we used to figure out where to go online. And if Nelson couldn't fix a server fast enough, it could be the difference between Google.com working or not. I mean, you're fundamentally worried that the site's going to go down, right? And so, because if you have a whole bunch of servers all die at the same time, all fail at the same time, Google goes down. And, you know, nowadays it's impossible to imagine that happening. Like, I mean, it's it's been for a long time, people would use Google, like going to Google.com as a yardstick of whether their internet was working without regards to the possibility that Google could be down because it's like, no one even considers that possibility. But in the early days, that actually happened. Right, either because we had a failure or because we had too much traffic. Like there were a time when we had too much traffic and Google like stopped working for a while. And so you're fundamentally worried that things are going to break and break in unexpected ways. That pressure really ramped up at the end of 2003. Google had been running an internal email service called Caribou. And right before the holidays in December, Andrea got a request from a team working on launching that service to the public. They came to us and said, oh, we're going to launch in our internal email And um, we need 10,000 diskful machines uh, next month. These diskful machines referred to hardware that packed in as much data storage as possible. They were big machines that literally were full of disks. So it was already a demanding request. And this team wanted them fast. And we need them next month. (laughs) And that was probably the size of the whole build. And mostly the build would go to search and ads. And we're like, who are you guys? We know them now as Gmail. You know, I mean, this is great, but do you really think you're going to have like an immediate uptake on this app? And are people going to really go for it? When Gmail launched in the spring of 2004, it offered a gigabyte of storage more than 250 times what other email services offered at the time. And it had all these features that allowed you to search and organize your messages. Email users today expect those kinds of features as standard fare, but they were totally new back then. And they created new, complex demands on the machines that Andrea was hustling to build every month and that Nelson was trying to keep from breaking. Before Gmail, Google had very few signed-in services. I may have had no signed-in services. And so your interaction with Google is entirely transactional. 
And so if you are talking to one server and that one server goes offline, you get, can get redirected to a different server and you as a consumer probably don't even notice because each of the servers has effectively the same answer for you. Whether they knew it or not, users suddenly had a much greater stake in the upkeep of the machines. When you have a login service like Gmail, if your Gmail server goes down, I can't redirect you to a different server and give you somebody else's inbox, right? It's got to be your inbox. And that meant clustering computers in ways that decreased vulnerabilities even further. It made the software running the machines even more important. And it also meant installing way more servers so that people always had access to their own information. So like you have to have your inbox on two servers instead of one and then have distributed front ends so that the user always looked live. When Google was only indexing the internet for search, server management was relatively simple. But things got more complicated when Google started to offer a larger set of services like Gmail and Maps and YouTube. Those were services that any person in the world could use. And that required many new layers of sophistication and reliability. It pushed the boundaries of web services and accelerated the need for warehouse-scale computers. As Luis Bajoso explains, we've come a long, long way since those early corkboard servers. Back in the day, the main challenge for the reliability of internet services was the quality and resiliency of the hardware and the facility in and of itself. Power going out, cooling, failing, failure rates of the machines being so high that the services would go down. So basically, whether it was mechanical, electrical, or computing electronics related, the reliability of data centers was dominated by the reliability of that physical infrastructure. What our team has done in the intervening 15 plus years is to make that not the case. Today, our facilities are so incredibly robust that by far the main reasons for us to have any outages at all, the culprit is not hardware, is not the electrical systems, is not the power systems, it is software. And I think that in and of itself is an accomplishment because it's an incredibly complex facility that has to have incredibly high reliability. And that reliability means that Nelson today can focus on building new cloud-based experiences like gaming rather than running around fixing broken servers. And even if he wanted to relive those chaotic early days, it would be nearly impossible given how huge today's warehouse computers are. They are massive. It is hard to, hard to believe or to imagine even as someone who's done it for 18 years. The scale is... Enormous. I would describe it as a as an airplane hangar full of full of computers. It is really an information factory, more so than it is a traditional data center. The cloud, the virtually infinite supercomputing made possible by networks of data centers, is completely changing things like app development, industrial operations banking, retail, gaming, and everything else. And that sweeping change may have seemed like a moonshot 20 years ago. But Google's small team of scrappy engineers in those early days, they didn't see it that way. They couldn't afford to. I think people talk about moonshots, but there's a, an alternative, which is roof shots, which Luis Barroso actually popularized. And I, I totally love it as an expression, which is this idea that if you do the, the much more manageable uh, uh, steps of roof shots, which like roof shot doesn't sound anywhere near as aspirational as moonshot, but moonshot is like 
it's very, very hard, like very high likelihood of failure. Whereas roof shot, you're like, I could, I could probably hit the roof with a tennis ball, right? And so you do a few of those and you can deliver as much value as a moonshot. We asked Luis Bajoso himself, as these roof shots add up, are we headed for another moonshot in computing? So uh, I guess I'm not going to venture a prediction, but I'll tell you, I, it's guaranteed because it's happened time and time again. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen again for sure. We'll be exploring what that might look like in a future episode. So stay tuned as we continue deeper into the unseen world of data centers. And that's our show. Where the Internet Lives is produced by PostScript Audio in collaboration with Google. Our theme music and scoring are by Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a rating if you're enjoying our journey together so far. In this episode, you heard from Nelson Abramson, Luis Andre Bajozo, Andrea Westcott, Urs Holtzle, Partha Ranganathan, Heather Vachon, Nan Bowden, Joe Cava, Steve Walter, Jane Stoll, and Thomas Gamble. Thanks to all of them for showing us around. And a special thanks to Partha, who interrupted his daughter's lunch to give us a tour that only guides at the Hoover Dam could rival. Okay, that was the famous 13-year-old eating lunch. <laughs> so she says she's very sorry, and she's gone off to her room to do what eat there. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. Oh, she, she was just looking for an excuse to go to her room and uh, watch uh, YouTube while eating. I'm Barry Fisher. Thanks for listening.